This is Chris Brooks. Thank you for listening to this edition of Equip. Be sure and subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. For more information, visit our website, equipradio.org. Hey there, friends. Chris Brooks here. You know, you may have recently heard me promoting our next program or even asking you to become a monthly partner. Folks that we call equippers. But today I want to invite you to join something infinitely more important. Would you consider joining the family of God? You know, it may be possible that you've been listening to us talk about the Bible and the Christian life, but you've never really met Jesus personally. He longs to welcome you into his family and have a close relationship with you. You can surrender your life to him, accept his forgiveness, and start your journey with Jesus right now. I'd love to help you to take that first step. All you have to do is simply call 888-NEED-HIM. That's 888-NEED-HIM. Welcome to another exciting edition of Equip with Chris Brooks. I'm so thrilled that you've joined me today. Can you do me a favor? Strap on your seatbelt. We're going to navigate through the contours of culture, as always, with the lens of the biblical worldview on. But before we do that, let me remind you, this is the day that the Lord has made. He has given it as a gift so that you and I can rejoice and be glad in it. So let's do just that. Let's follow the word to the Apostle Paul. Let's rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And with that, I welcome you into what will be a very informative edition of Equip. You know, so often on this program, we've tried to cast a vision, a biblical vision of what the Bible teaches about anthropology, who we are as human beings made in the image of God. What is a biblical anthropology? And at the very root of it is that thought that we have been made in the image of God. As a result of that, we are called to uh, proclaim the truth of God's word, to point people to Christ who bears witness of the Father to us. But we're also called to bestow dignity respect upon all men, even those, according to 1 Peter 3, 15, that we're trying to reach with the gospel that would differ from us. We're called to present the truth of Christ to them with gentleness and respect. But how do we do it when there are such divergent ideas that have emerged in our culture about everything from the sanctity of life to what justice should look like to what defines human rights. Uh, There's been such hotly contested ideas around these for so long, but it seems like in a post-George Floyd world uh, where justice has been at the forefront of our cultural conversations, the, uh, the ideas have become very distinct, very different, and very pronounced. On the one side of things, you have those who will say there is no such thing as structural sin. There is no such thing as a need for societal examination and uh, repentance over policies and institutionalization of uh, sinful behavior. And that any conversation about justice is a bridge too far that will only be a distraction from the gospel. On the other hand, you have those who would put people into categories of oppressor-oppressed groups that just because you were born to a particular race or ethnicity automatically defines whether or not you are good or evil, righteous or unrighteous. So where does the Christian find their voice? How do we process through all of this? Well, I am excited to commend to you 
Um, I think the tour de force resource on this conversation, I have in front of me, in my hands right now, a book called Critical Dilemma. Maybe you've heard of things like critical theory or critical race theory. Uh, those are certainly popular uh, terms in our day and age. Well, this book uh, goes deep into what is behind those terms, the ideas that support them, how we should understand those ideas, and how we engage them. It's a book that gives both warning and instruction. And I'm so grateful for Neil Shinvi as well as Pat Sawyer, who co-authored the book, so much so that I asked Neil Shinvi to join me today so that we can have a robust dialogue and hopefully encourage you to get your copy for you and for your local church. So who is Neil Shinvi? Well, I'm glad you asked. Neil has uh, an AB in chemistry from Princeton University, PhD in theoretical uh, chemistry from UC Berkeley. He's the author of the book, Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. I got a chance to meet Neil Shimvey a little bit over five years ago, uh, a little bit more than that now, as we did an apologetics conference at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and was immediately impressed with his intellect and with his heart. I'm grateful that he joins me again on Equip. Neil, how are you, brother? I'm doing great, Chris. Thank you so much for inviting me. Neil, for those who don't know you, and more particular, Pat is not with us right now. Uh, Pat, his background, talk a little bit about who you guys are, and then we'll dive into the book. Well, you talked about my background. I uh, went to Princeton and Berkeley, and I was a theoretical chemist for years, and that's my training, and uh, got in, became a Christian in grad school, got involved in apologetics, and you know, I'm kind of ape, I'm very apolitical, frankly. I don't get super excited and pumped and, and angry about elections. I just have never been that way. I've always wanted to, you know, focus on the gospel. And uh, but about seven or eight years ago, around the time of the rise of Black Lives Matter, I began to notice a shift in the way that our culture and even the church was talking about things like race, but also gender, sexuality, justice. And I couldn't put my finger on it, but something seemed off. And around that time, I providentially met Pat, who is a member of our, our church, my church, uh, the Summit Church, where J.D. Greer is the pastor. And we both, he, as he was doing a PhD in critical theory, the critical tradition in education and cultural studies. And when I began talking to him about what his research involved, I realized <clears throat> the things I'm seeing in our culture are actually coming out of this very field of study. So we became friends and immediately began speaking and writing together about this topic, helping Christians to understand where these ideas were coming from and why we as Christians need to reject them. Yeah, first off, it, it is uh, very rare that you in this day and age find someone like Pat with his background who has gone into the belly of the well, if you will. <laughs> to study these theories. He did not just go to conservative Christian institutions to get a distilled version of these theories, but he went straight to those who were teaching them in many ways and uh, continues to be a voice there. I think that's important, Neil, to highlight. It is because people often criticize me that I'm just a chemist. And I, you know, guilty as charged, I admit that. But Pat, Pat really <laughs> is... 
uh, and a scholar. He's a published peer-reviewed papers in the critical tradition. His dissertation, his PhD dissertation, was on critical pedagogy or in, involved that. So he's really speaking from a position of authority. He teaches at a secular university. Uh, he teaches graduate level classes. Where he's, you know, so, so I think he does. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. He definitely teaches students. And so he's very well informed about all these areas of critical tradition, uh, feminist epistemology. So it, it's really helpful to have him guiding um, not only my reading and writing, but also just how I think about these issues. He really understands them very carefully. Yeah, and I just think that it's important to to highlight that um, chemists go to heaven too. <laughs> so if anyone's criticized you at all, I do want you to know that chemists get to go to heaven as my well. My sins brother. can be forgiven. That's uh, but, good. <laughs> but no, you, you've been a huge blessing uh, to my heart. I, I want to talk a little bit uh about the book who's it for why did you write it so it really is for everyone we pitched it to our publisher as a book that could be read by basically any evangelical christian in the u.s uh, people in ministry pastors seminary professors but also just people in the pews homeschooling moms uh, doctors lawyers professional students we wanted it to be scholarly, yes. Uh, it contains 770 plus footnotes, but also accessible. You know, we have pictures and diagrams and illustrations, uh, examples that should make it accessible to anybody. So, uh, but we, we really believe the need is tremendous. So, we wanted to give a book that would speak to everyone in the Christian church, even, even outside of it. So, uh, we, we we mainly write to Christians, but we also um, are uh, conscious that uh, critical theory is a culture-wide problem. And so uh, I think four of our endorsers actually are secular people. Peter Boghossian, who was part of the SoCal Squared hoax, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, who wrote for The Atlantic, Eric Smith, the founder of Free Black Thought, and Eric Kaufman, who's a professor in the UK. They were all secular people, but because our book and it's, our book is very explicitly Christian, we we know, we we have a whole chapter on yeah, Protestant theology, yeah. and yet these secular people just endorsed it and said this is an excellent book. It helped me understand critical theory, <laughs> and and they were okay yes. with us saying, hey, as Christians, here's the biblical view on say sexuality and gender. Here's why we oppose queer theory. But even then, they're like, well. We, we understand it. We can support that. Yeah, and I find the book to be charitable and balanced. And to say that it's charitable and balanced in this day and age for some will cause them to be turned off and to say, well, is it compromise? Uh, and, and that's sad to me because I think the book is as rock solid in its convictions, uncompromising. And anyone who knows anything about you uh, would know that. Um, so please don't hear me as saying that this book is just piffy and uh, a kumbaya opportunity to say, let's all get along. I think it is actually dealing with substance, uh, what, it, what it is we're dealing with and um, how we should properly understand it. But I also think you get something that a lot of people don't get, and that is before we can critique any worldview or any idea – we have to first acknowledge what makes it attractive to its adherents. So I don't have to agree with something to understand why some are attracted to it. And so we'll get back to that in just a moment. But let's just start with 
how serious of a problem is critical theory? And let's define why it, it's a problem. Sure. So in the book, we begin by just giving some examples of quote unquote wokeness in our culture. Everything ranging from the Smithsonian Museum published an infographic a few years ago saying that the scientific method and rational linear thinking were elements of whiteness and white culture. And you people were just gasping and saying, that is super racist. What are you talking about? Objective thinking is white? And they took the infographic down. And, and But people were like, where does this come from? Or uh, the Blue's Clues is a, is a cartoon targeted to toddlers, you know, three to five-year-olds. And a few years ago, they ran a video for Pride Month that featured a drag queen singing a song of, um, to the tune of the Ansco Marching. And it had lyrics about asexual, pansexual, and bisexual grownups who love each other. It had a picture of a cartoon beaver with a double mastectomy scar where the breast had been removed. This is on screen for toddlers. So things like that are happening in our culture. It's not just some bizarre conservative fear-mongering. It's everywhere. So that's a big problem. And then in the church, you're seeing these same ideas sometimes in as extreme forms. A good example of this would be Dr. Christina Cleveland was a Duke professor. She wrote yes. a book called Disunity yep. in Christ, which is a pretty anodyne, decent book about how we should seek to love one another as Christians across lines of race and politics. And that was 2013. She wrote for Christianity Today. She gave keynote talks at Campus Crusade for Christ crew in her varsity. So this is a major evangelical figure as late as 2016, 2017. Well, last year, two years ago now, she came out with a book entitled God is a Black Woman. And she's renounced mm -hmm. Christ and now in her own words, worships the sacred black feminine. And the book is just yeah. completely, I mean, she's not a Christian. She says that, but it's just horrifying completely unorthodox, obviously. And so what happened to her? And this is just one example. We don't pick on people, you know, intentionally, but we want to explain or show this is not some people in a corner that no one's heard of doing things. These are major uh, factors in our culture and they're affecting prominent Christians and, and average people. We've seen it in our own lives. We've seen people who have latched onto the ideas and have fallen deeply into progressive Christianity and uh, ultimately into apostasy. So we want to make that clear that, yes, take this extremely seriously. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I've been following the examples that you uh, have been referring to. And the truth of the matter is um, you can say in some ways, I kind of equate this to um uh, our journey with COVID. When COVID first came out, it felt like an unknown. So there were a lot of things that were being said and did that now we look back in retrospect uh, a few years uh, from, from that moment and say, man, there were some people who were pretty spot on with their concerns, mm -hmm. right, about how we were handling it and how we were approaching it and policy issues and all that stuff. And I feel kind of like this the same way about critical theory. You, uh, in particular, were a voice early on warning a lot of the church, hey, we need to be careful in this uh, in this whole area. And I think that there was a lot of unknowns about mm -hmm. it. But now, is it fair to say that we can look back 
and without question see where this is leading us and where it has led us? I think it has. And I, I am seeing, uh, comfortingly, I'm seeing a, a lot of evangelical, evangelical pastors who were very um, open to these movements and saying, well, I think there's a, a, a real some good here. And I think we should support these ideas because they're helping us to see injustice more clearly. And they're now realizing, wait, something went wrong. <laughs> and and yeah, I was an early yeah. adopter, but I think I'm glad to see it becoming a mainstream criticism now. All right, here's what we're going to do. When we come back, I'm going to ask Dr. Shinvi to define what critical theory is. Maybe you have tuned out. Maybe you said, I don't know even what this whole thing is about, wokeness, all of it. We're going to define it, and then we're going to critique it. We'll be right back. have been taught that friendships are a luxury, but Rebecca McLaughlin has written a compelling case for why friendships are absolutely central to growing a Christian life. It's called No Greater Love. This book will challenge you to think seriously about the value of genuine friendship and teach you to enjoy the fellowship of friends just as God designed. A copy can be yours today if you support Equip with a gift of any amount. Simply call 888-644-4144 or visit EquipRadio.org. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. Neil Shimby is my guest today. Neil is uh, co-authored with Pat Sawyer a book called Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. Uh, let's, let's talk about defining critical theory. You look at four tenets of critical theory in the book. Define what critical theory is for those who don't know. So critical theory today is an umbrella category that includes many different critical theories, including critical race theory, queer theory, critical pedagogy, post-colonial theory, theory, things like that. So it's a very common mistake to, to equate critical theory and critical race theory. Even scholars do that sometimes. But really, critical theory is better understood at this larger category. But all of these disciplines, uh, whether it's queer theory or critical pedagogy or post-colonialism, they all share f- these four ideas sort of in common. And, and what are they? So the first and most recognizable idea is the idea of the social binary. This is the idea that you can categorize groups in terms of oppressor groups and oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, and sexuality, physical ability, age, nationality, and a host of other identity markers. And now when you people hear that, they just think, wait, wait a minute, wait, you're saying that all women, for example, are oppressed, uh, all, um, straight people are oppressors, all Christians are oppressors, all non-Christians are, I don't really understand why you can say that because I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not white, I'm a woman, I don't go around and feeling oppressed all day. Well, the second big idea is that oppression occurs through what's called a hegemonic power. What's that? Well, critical theorists believe that oppression happens whenever the ruling class, whether it's men or whites or heterosexuals or Christians or the able-bodied, 
when they impose their values on culture in such a way that their values become normal, objective, neutral, maybe even God-ordained, well, that's oppression. And so the imposition of the ruling class's values, whether it's white supremacy or the patriarchy or heterosexism um, or Christian values, that marginalizes all of those oppressed groups. So they've redefined the word oppression. And all of us, because we're kind of brainwashed into these systems that perpetuate these hegemonic norms, because of that, we're all kind of blinded to the reality that we're oppressed. So how do you escape that brainwashing? And the third idea then is lived experience. So through your lived experience, if you're an oppressed person, so if you're a woman or a person of color, or if you're LGBTQ or disabled, well, your lived experience of oppression enables you to see through these hegemonic values and norms, to realize they're just mechanisms by which the ruling class marginalizes you. And that way, then you have greater insight into reality. So because of that, if you are privileged, if you are white, male, straight, Christian, whatever, you ought to defer to the voices of oppressed groups because they have greater insight than you through their lived experience. And then finally, the fourth idea is social justice. The end goal, the purpose of these critical social theories is to achieve social justice, which they have defined to mean the elimination of the social binary. So critical theorists today want to dismantle the systems and structures that produce the oppressed and the oppressors, that produce winners and losers, so that we can all share power and there's no one overriding system of values and norms that marginalizes certain people. That's in a nutshell, those four ideas unite all of these various critical disciplines. All right. Now, some may sit back and say, man, I, these are big terms, <laughs> hegemonic power, um, even social justice, social binary. Uh, th there's a lot that's there. But I will tell you that what Neil just did is uh, in many ways make these very uh, extensive and expansive academic discussions. He's uh, he summarized them in a way that actually is helpful and makes it approachable. So I want to be helpful as much as possible. I think social binary is pretty easy to understand. And that is, again, basically to oversimplify is placing people in one of two categories. By definition of social binary theory, you are, or, uh, or ideology, you are either an oppressor or oppressed based off of the group you're a part of uh, based off of class and race, ethnicity, and power dynamics. Is that right? That's right. And remember, they've redefined the word oppression. So they the, traditionally, oppression refers to tyranny, cruelty, overt yes, injustice. Yes, yes. But they've redefined it to include things like whenever the, the cultural values say that yes, you, your, yes. your lifestyle you are, are somehow abnormal, that's oppression. So for yeah. them, say that yes. the gender binary itself is oppressive. To say there are two categories of male and female and that's it, yes. that's oppression and it should be dismantled. And let me just say, and we're going to get into this, let me just say, I think that the reason why, going back to what I said earlier, that before you can critique something, you have to know what why it is uh, attractive to those who've adhered to it. Uh, I think be it's attractive for some because there are grains of truth in it that dominant groups can go too far in assuming that the values that are broadly accepted or prescribed 
are therefore the best, the only in the world, right? And, uh, and we do need to critique all value systems through the scriptures, through the lens of the word of God. But I think that what critical theory does is go too far and, um, and, and ultimately leads us down an unhealthy road. I want to just drill in on hegemonic power because it's a, it's a big word. So give us examples of what you mean by that. Right. So take, take race. Uh, this is why you have the Smithsonian claiming that objective, rational, linear thinking is whiteness. How, how could they say that? Do you think people of color can't think rationally? You think it's no, well, no, we as Christians realize that's ridiculous. But for the critical theorist, they look at the way that uh, objective, rational, linear thinking uh, supposedly, supposedly reinforces a hierarchy that puts whites at the top. So you say, well, yes. why is this person, uh, you know, why did you hire them? Well, they have a higher GPA. See, well, that's whiteness. You're appealing to some objective. Well, that's actually a way for you to maintain your white power. But again, as Christians, yeah. we say, no, there are actual standards that are objective, not just arbitrary. Yeah, and I think that what we have to be able to distinguish, too, is between uh, guaranteed outcomes and guaranteed opportunities. We're going to talk more about this and so much more with Neil Shindy right after this. Hey, I wonder if you've been listening to our program for a long time and have never been in touch with us. We'd love to meet you and to thank you for your support. You know, your financial gifts, no matter the size, make a huge difference. Every little bit helps us equip men and women to live and love Jesus in today's rapidly changing culture. Here's the number if you want to financially support Equip, 888-644-4144 or go online to equipradio.org. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. Neil Shimvey is my guest. I pray that this program is a blessing to you. If Equip is a blessing to you, can you stand with us today? We need your generosity if we're going to accomplish our mission to help Christians to more effectively live, share, and defend their faith. It's important that we are able to think critically and live compassionately. Those are not mutually exclusive virtues. We can live in a world with grace and truth. Jesus did, according to John 1 and 17, and so should we. Dr. Neil Shinvey is my guest, a book, Critical Dilemma, I highly recommend it. Neil, we were talking about the kind of four tenets of critical theory, social binary, hegemonic power, lived experience, ultimately a skewed view of social justice. Um, Neil, going back to hegemonic power, Again, examples that have been used very classically is to say, well, uh, literacy, for example, is a tool of oppression. Having any standards uh, uh, for family, a uh, vision of the what we would call the traditional family or the nuclear family, that that is oppression by definition. These are the types of things that are being promoted in universities that many of our listeners are sending their kids to. That's right. This is all over the academy. And so this is why if you have kids who are headed to college, please buy this book or at least get equipped because they're going to be exposed to this. Uh, and where they're going, you know, 90% of their classmates will just 
buy it wholesale. And 99% of the professors, they have to be able to recognize the errors in this thinking and not just because it's going to be in the water. Neil, does this all add up to the fact that we should not engage in any conversations about justice, that, um, that injustice, therefore, cannot be institutionalized through policies and practices? Should Christians ignore all of those cries? You know, at the end of chapter one, we give three wrong responses to critical theory. And one of those wrong responses is, well, we see this is why we should ignore all justice issues and just preach the gospel. But a moment's reflection tells you, well, that's just totally unbiblical. God commands us to seek justice, to protect the vulnerable. And so it takes something like systemic injustice. You know, that term is very, it can be dangerous because depending on how you define that term, it can be bad. But I think everyone should agree that, say, abortion is a systemic injustice. Well, why? It's not just a few people doing individual acts of evil. It's that their whole systems and laws and funding and cultural narratives that support the killing of the unborn. So if anything is systemic injustice, it's the issue of abortion today. So we should affirm that's a category. And there are other historically things like the Holocaust we mentioned or chattel slavery these were not just individual bad deeds. There were powers behind them. There were systems and laws and governance behind them. And so we can do both. We can change individual hearts. We can also change unjust laws. We should. Yeah, and I, and I think that it's important for us to be able to understand that words evolve in their meaning over time so often. And so the way someone would have used even the phrase social justice in writing about this uh, in in theological uh, books and volumes in the early 1900s would be radically different than writing about them in the early 2000s. So talk about how social justice has really changed in the way people use that term. That's right. I think it was introduced by a Catholic priest in the 19th century. It's, it's an old yes. phrase. And it originally referred to basically Catholic social teaching. And then since then, it's taken on a range of meanings. And so this is the way to start most conversations when someone uses a term like social justice or systemic racism or anything like that. Say, well, can you define what you mean by that? Just ask them, well, how are you defining that term? And we give an example uh, of you know, the ESV study Bible has a section heading in from Exodus. I think it's Exodus 22 or something. But it, the section heading says laws about social justice. So that's, and, and they're not, now what are those laws they're categorizing as social justice laws? What's things like care for the sojourner, you know, defend the rights of the widow, but also things like you should stone witches. So they're using that category, not in a modern woke way, they're using it to refer to just laws for our society, for the Israelite society. So you can use that term in a way that's clearly just defining it biblically. But of course, most people today, when they use the phrase social justice, are implicitly adopting these critical theory categories. So again, just have people define their term. That's all. I want to, um, man, there's so much that we can uh, unpack here, but I want to make sure that we are most helpful in, in uh, helping people to navigate through how to engage. But one more definitional question, and that is wokeness. You've used that term. What is wokeness and what's its relationship to critical theory? 
we try to avoid the term wokeness whenever possible. It's the term that people recognize. You know, there was a Saturday Night Live skit about you know woke pants that <laughs> it was very silly. But the point is that term people kind of spot. Oh yeah, this obsession with oppression and victimhood, a, a deference to anyone's feelings, and they have their truth. You have we kind of gather that that's woke. But in the book, we try to use the term contemporary critical theory because woke can be a loaded term. People might think you're just you're just blasting anything you don't like as woke. So we get that. So we try to define a neutral term, contemporary critical theory, and use that in place of wokeness. But unfortunately, for better or worse, most people recognize woke phenomenon. And you know, up until you know 2017 or so, you had progressives self-identifying as woke. There were websites called like woke homeschooling and woke parenting and woke history. Yeah. So only in the last, so you see words change. Words are on the move. So we try to use the, the, the word that carries the least unintended baggage. And so we tend to avoid woke and say contemporary critical theory. Yeah, it's interesting because I grew up in the black community and in the 80s, uh, that term woke was really popular and mm-hmm. and it was used often to describe, hey, are you aware of what's really going on in the world or are, or right. are you like the 95% of people who seem to just be going along without critically evaluating what's going on in the world? And, and, and obviously that evolves, right? And, um, and, and I see Christians, and, and this is a part of Christian history, trying to uh, redeem terms and so I saw and have uh, uh, relationships and friendships with those who said, how do we redeem this? And Ephesians 5 and 14 says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in your heart. And so there, there was a sense of, yeah, we do need to be woke. We need to awake to Christ. That's what real wokeness is. And it was a, actually an apologetic and evangelistic pushback mm-hmm. that was used in urban apologetics to say, no, Christianity, seeing Christ is what it really means to be woke. But the term now has taken on a broader cultural context outside of the urban setting that really seems to be more akin to critical theory. And do you hold a social binary view of the world? Uh, Have you bought into the whole lived experience that says, hey, if you're white, if you're male in particular, if you're able-bodied, you don't have a voice. You shouldn't be heard. Just sit mm-hmm. there in a corner and be quiet. All of those things are a front against the gospel. But it is interesting how different groups and different generations use terms differently. When it comes to the engagement aspect of the book, what are you hoping to accomplish there? And what guidance would you give? We are very clear that these four ideas, and we unpack also the central ideas of critical race theory, independently of queer theory independently so all these various critical theories these ideas are just wrong they're just opposed to christianity we can't reconcile them with the gospel Uh, so we're very clear on that but in terms of engagement we don't want to just shut down conversation we don't want someone who accidentally says the word awoke or uses the word oppressed to get excommunicated (laughs) it's not our goal we want christians to start talking to each other and have conversations, but conversations that are rooted in scripture. We want every thought, every idea, every ideology tested against the word of God. But And so I think too often you have these quote-unquote dialogues, which are really just monologues. You, ha- you, know, you have five 
five woke Christians or five anti-woke Christians. That's not a panel. That's a speech. So we want to encourage people to, you know, if you really think that, no, there's some redeeming value to these ideas, okay, let's get up there on stage with another, with a Christian and both of you then argue from the Bible and we'll we'll let the audience hold your uh, words to the scrutiny of scripture and see who's right. Or maybe you're both a little, right? I don't know. Um, So we want to do that. The other thing we emphasize in our book is the need for Christians to talk about race and racism in the church. In our chapter two, we have a whole chapter, chapter two, devoted to the history of slavery and Jim Crow and the black codes in the U.S. Uh, we talk about present day racial discrimination. In chapter seven, we have a whole chapter on the the, the true statements that critical theorists make. That's um, not heretical to say, you know, through common revelation, through general revelation, even non-Christians can know true things about reality. And so, for example, critical race theorists correctly affirm that race is a social construct. That's amen. There's one race, the human race, Acts 17, and from one man, God created all men. So we're not denying that some of these things that they say are true. We're just denying that the system they ascribe to is true. That's not true. It's false. So, But we want people to be able to have these conversations uh, and to, to start from the place where we say, hey, we are brothers in Christ. Uh, we want to combat actual racism. We want to fight actual misogyny. We want to uh, stick closely to God's word and love the brethren. But we can do all of that. We have to do all of that while firmly rejecting these critical social theories. You know, brother, I'm just going to say this book is long overdue. And for those who are serious (laughs) about honoring God in these conversations, about accurately understanding those who even have a different viewpoint than you about dealing with these matters in a spirit of grace and truth, again, I cannot commend the book enough. I think that what we have done far too often to our detriment is taking sound bites from pundits and politicians instead of taking seriously these ideas and critiquing them through the lens of the gospel. So I thank you, Neil, and I thank Pat because I think the church owes a deep debt to you guys for the work done here. So when we come back, we're gonna talk about some ideas that will devastate the church. We need to understand them so that we won't fall prey to them. So you don't go anywhere. These breaks give you opportunity to find out more about the book and the guests. Go to equipradio.org. This daily program is fully devoted to coming alongside listeners like you to give you the tools needed for a successful walk with God. As one of our loyal listeners, would you be willing to become an equipper? Your monthly contribution will be applied to equipping others all across the country. Plus, as an equipper, I'll send you regular emails that contain brief pastoral messages prepared just for you. To become an equipper now, call 888-644-4144 or go online to equipradio.org. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. I'm super thankful for this conversation with Dr. Neil Shindy on critical theory. You know, we're committed to taking on the tough topics of our day with biblical answers rooted and grounded in the authority of Christ. I hope that matters to you. Friends, I want to make an appeal to you that you would consider supporting Equip today. This is where we're at financially. Every month we have a financial budget, just like your family, just like your business, if you're a business owner, 
uh, just like any ministry you would expect, uh, to cover our airtime, to cover the cost, the overhead, to come along with reaching the communities we do throughout the U.S. and into Canada, throughout all of North America, and through online streaming literally around the world. But in order for us to get there, we need your help. Now, the typical gift to uh, our radio program is about $30 in size, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, This ministry is not underwritten by any major corporate grant or any governmental program. And in many ways, that's a blessing because it allows us to speak boldly, fearlessly, unapologetically for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our feet have always been planted in the word of God. Our message is the gospel, and we will not back down from that. But in order for us to hit our budget every month, we need a handful of friends who give larger gifts, those in the range of $250 or $500 or even $1,000. So today, I'm going to ask for five friends who can stand with us for one of those larger gifts. If you can give a gift today of $250 or $500 or $1,000 or more, please call now, 888-644-4144. That's 888-644-4144. Or go to equipradio.org. Neil Shinvi, I just want to, uh, with our time left, just a few minutes, um, just run a couple of ideas in the books. You guys deal with several of them. But uh, why is it dangerous to say people of color in the U.S. are oppressed? For a number of reasons. So number one, when you say that, you're actually tacitly redefining the word oppression because I don't think most people believe that, say, Hispanic men or women walk around every day just being cruelly abused all the time. They're just it's like they're enslaved. That's not true. I mean, I I'm a person of color. I'm half Indian. I don't walk around feeling like I'm always under threat of violence and everyone hates me. And if we inter- if we say that over and over that slogan. One, it's not true, but two, we don't want people internalizing that. We don't want people always looking around the corner fearful of experiencing hatred and racism, thinking that going to church, imagine a person goes into church and is looking around thinking that white guy's oppressing me, that guy white guy's oppressing me, they all hate me. No, we have to see people through the lens of the gospel, especially fellow believers. These are your brothers and sisters. This is a very poisonous idea, both for the people that repeat it, but also for those who internalize it. All right. Why is it um, dangerous for us to say that the Bible is written from the perspective of the oppressed? Well, for one, that's just not true. I mean, certainly some of the biblical authors uh, were suffering. I mean, uh, the the Gospels were written by the time when Jews were under the oppression of the Roman Empire that was absolutely oppressing them. And yet you had other biblical authors like Solomon, who was a king and the richest man in the entire world. You had some of the prophets who were you know, had authority and uh, prestige as advisors to the king. So it's just not true that all the books of the Bible were written by oppressed sure. people. And, and sure. more than that, you're taking the focus off what the Bible actually is about, which is our spiritual deliverance. It doesn't matter who tells you the truths of God. It matters whether they're true, not who <laughs> delivered them to you. So again, you're just you're just focusing on the wrong things when you say that. All right, one more. Why is it dangerous for us to say, hey, straight white males need to just listen? 
Well, I have no problem with saying that straight white males need to listen because everyone needs to listen. Uh, James says that all of us should be slow to speak and quick to listen. The problem is that slogans often used to say, well, you need to only listen and just basically yeah. shut up and listen. But no, my friends, you can't tell people to shut up because of their skin color or their gender. You, we all have to be humble and listen to one another because any one of us can be wrong. So we all have to be able to put or submit our beliefs to the Bible's scrutiny, whether you're a you know, white male or an Asian female. I, you know, I categorize you, and I said this earlier at the beginning of the interview, as um, probably in uh, a small group of people that I think are probably in the category of most misunderstood in the body of Christ right now. Uh, I'm grateful just to allow you to express your own ideas, your thoughts, to uh, maybe dispel some myths about your motives, your heart. So let's just end there. What is your hope concerning the book and ultimately this season for the body of Christ? My genuine hope is that this book brings the book brings clarity and unity. Clarity in terms of convincing people who are quote unquote woke sympathetic that these ideas really are dangerous. They are going to rip your spiritual life apart. We have to reject them. Uh, but unity, because I'm calling us to the unity that, that Christ won for his people. I want to see people across lines of race, class, and gender in the church embracing one another as brothers, not sweeping aside real racism, not ignoring it, but saying, how can we fight together to, uh, to love one another as Jesus commands us to do? As we want to do, so that's and that's why we wrote the book. We we really want to protect God's people and to love them better and help them love each other. Well, brother, uh, I I want you to know a uh, ton of respect for you. And uh, although uh, Pat couldn't be with us today, you can thank him on our behalf. I'm I'm grateful for the friendship that you guys have formed and the fruitfulness that have come out of that friend friendship, and in particular for this book critical dilemma. I'm going to be encouraging our entire team and staff here at my local church to listen to this interview and to read the book. And I encourage other pastors. We live in dangerous times. Ideas have consequences. And as my good friend, John Stone Street says, bad ideas have victims. And I think that critical theory, though it in its best forms, tries to uh, help us to understand that sin is real and that uh, things uh, marginalization and mistreatment of others is wrong. It takes us to a place that ultimately rips us apart and even more importantly deceives us and pulls us from Christ. So I encourage you, get the book, Critical Dilemma. Thank you, Neil, for being with me. Friends, go to our website, equipradio.org. Until we're together again next time, as always, remember, Equip with Chris Brooks is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Bible and